1: If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac, or drop a crispy fry between the car seats, or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. At participating McDonald's. The NBA playoffs are here, and we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Oh, Even the play. speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch, because this is the Turn It Up to 11 NBA Playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. This is what you love about the NBA Playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV.
0: On today's podcast, you'll hear an interview I did with the intelligence historian Jill Bennett. Jill was the chief historian of the Foreign Office for many years and is also the author of the book, The Zinoviev Letter, The Conspiracy That Never Dies. I spoke to Jill about the Zinoviev Letter and how it triggered one of the biggest political scandals in 20th century Britain. So Jill, just to um, help listeners into this topic, what exactly was the Zinoviev letter, and why was it so significant?
2: Right, well, the Zinoviev letter is one of those things that a lot of people have heard of, but very few people actually know what it is. Very briefly, it was a letter supposedly written by Grigory Zinoviev, who was the head of the Comintern, which was the Bolshevik propaganda organization, in 1924, addressed to the Communist Party of Great Britain, exhorting them to greater revolutionary effort. Now, Zinoviev was writing letters like this to communist parties all over the world all the time. So there was nothing very unusual about it in one sense. However, um, why it's been important and why it's still a subject of controversy is because of when it arrived. And it arrived at the very end of the very first ever Labour government in Britain, just as a general election campaign was beginning. And the letter was leaked to the press and was used by right-wing interests to smear the Labour Party uh, and uh, to cause a lot of controversy during the campaign. And although it did not cause Labour to lose the election, they were always going to lose the election, it nevertheless humiliated the Labour Party and has become known as a kind of symbol of political dirty tricks later on, particularly after it emerged that the letter was almost certainly a forgery.
0: So why was the letter um, so damaging to MacDonald's
2: Labour government? Because it implied that the Labour government was in the, the... enthrall to what they called the Reds in Moscow, as the Daily Mail put it. Now, in fact, Labour was very uh, anti-communist. There was quite a row between the British Communist Party and Labour, but that's not the point. The point was that it gave the impression that the Labour government was receiving orders from Moscow uh, and that it—you know th- this was sort of political interference. And so it was very damaging to Labour, even though none of it was true.
0: Can you give us an idea of what was going on in Britain at the time? So partly what was happening in British politics, but also attitudes towards communism and how it was um, perceived at the time.
2: Yes, well, the Labour government had come into power in January 1924, rather unexpectedly, certainly, to Labour. Um, Both the traditional ruling parties, the Conservatives and the Liberals were split and the Conservatives were spit on trade, There's an unusual thing. Um, And so uh, that is how Labour came to be in government, and both the traditional ruling parties thought it wasn't a bad idea to let Labour have a go at governing, on the assumption they would make a complete mess of it and then normal service could resume. In fact, in some respects, the Labour government did pretty well, and it was actually rather moderate. Ramsey MacDonald, who was Prime Minister and Foreign Secretary, was you know, a, a very moderate kind of socialist politician. So actually, they'd done particularly well in foreign policy. He had um, brokered a very important deal um, on European peace uh, and for uh, to do with reparations after the First World War. But what got Labour into trouble was the question of the Soviet Union. Now, you have to remember that in 1924, it's only seven years since the Bolshevik Revolution, the October Revolution, which had uh, led to a Bolshevik government in Moscow. The USSR, the Soviet Union, is a fairly new uh, institution. And the Soviet government was committed to the overthrow of world capitalism and spreading revolution. So it was pretty alarming to a lot of politicians of other uh, persuasions. Um, So therefore, it was a a difficult sell, really, always going to be a difficult sell for Labour to normalise relations with the Soviet Union. But MacDonald felt that was the way to do it, not to treat them as kind of pariahs, but you needed to try and bring them into the sort of family of nations so that in the hope they might then behave better. And at the same time, the Bolsheviks, while trying to overthrow world capitalism, they also wanted to become a member of the family of nations from the point of view of finance and trade, and they wanted a loan. So the, government, the Labour government took power in January 24. From about April to August, there were anglo soviet negotiations and draft treaties had been agreed, which were laid, uh, assigned, but not taken through parliament. And so then you come to the parliamentary session in the summer of 1924. Now, uh, MacDonald also got himself into a lot of difficulties over a famous case called the Campbell case. And without going into too much detail, this was to do with a man called J.R. Campbell, John Ross Campbell, who was a communist who wrote an article in the Workers' Weekly, essentially inciting the um, British Armed Forces to mutiny. And there was an outroar about this. And at first, the Labour government said they were going to prosecute Campbell for treason. They, then there was a complete uproar in the Labour Party because it was all the same kind of thing they'd been saying anyway. So the government withdrew the prosecution, but it was all very clumsily handled and it undoubtedly damaged Macdonald and the Labour government. And it was because of the Campbell case Um, that there was a vote of no confidence, uh, which they lost um, at the beginning of October. And so that's why there was a general election campaign. So it was a very sensitive time for this Zinoviev letter to be arriving in Britain.
0: So when the letter was published in the Daily Mail just five days before the election,
2: what was the public reaction? Well, of course, it's quite difficult to tell because the the newspapers who were reporting the reaction are the same ones i mean the press is much smaller then there are only a, a small number and they are largely a tory controlled so of course they say public out-roar, uproar uproar uh, you know people are scared And in fact, after this, after the election um, itself, when uh, I say the Conservatives won it comprehensively, the Liberal vote collapsed. So Labour, in fact, polled a million more votes in that election than they had in the election that put them in power. But because the Conservatives were now unified, they were always going to win. But at the cabinet meeting after the election result, when the Labour ministers were discussing the result, they felt that people had been frightened by the publicity. But it's quite hard to tell how true that was, but it certainly had a major impact.
0: You mentioned earlier something I find quite interesting that you said um, Labour was was never going to win, so it's not like it robbed them of a victory. So why did it have such an important impact on the Labour
2: government and the way they perceive their own history? Well, of course, still to that, the that's day? in a sense the fact that they were never going to win is is a judgment of hindsight. Though even at the time, you could have you could have thought that, but in fact, a lot of people in the Labour movement felt that it had robbed them of victory, and. Not just that, but it had damaged their reputation so that it was a lasting effect. When it became clear that it was almost certainly a forgery, that of course made everything worse. And for a long time, there were new revelations all the time with people saying, oh, it was so and so who forged it, or actually it was this particular person who leaked it, or it was so. And the other key factor about the letter, which is still often forgotten really, is that there is no apparent original of this letter. The only text we have that is in any way authentic, as far as that is concerned, is the text that was sent to the London headquarters of the Secret Intelligence Service by their station in Riga. That's how this text came in um, on the 8th of October at 1924. There have been lots of other texts discovered in various places, but the general view seems to be that they are all retranslations of the first one that came in. But there's never been a bit of paper or an original. And in fact, of course, it came in in English. Um, the SIS headquarters asked their station in Riga to give them a, a Russian text. Is there a Russian text? They said, "Oh yes," said Riga, and they sent them one. But that it, was, it proved that that itself was only a translation into Russian of what they'd sent in English. So the whole thing was, was very murky. And of course, Labour felt that this showed that the intelligence services um, were probably implicated in trying to stitch them up. And it fostered that feeling that the establishment, that is, whether it's the civil service or intelligence services, um, were all out to get them. And that feeling really persisted, particularly when the, um, the letter kept being mentioned in successive elections. If ever there was a, a hint of any kind of um, chicanery or political dirty tricks, it was just like this. And that is still true now. It came up in the referendum campaign, um, the EU referendum. It came up in the 2017 general election. And I'm quite sure that when we have another general election, it will come up again. You weigh up in the book some of the different candidates
0: for who might have written the Zinoviev letter. Could you run us through a couple of them and and how viable you think they are
2: as for Well, it it is frustrating. I mean, I've been looking at the Zinoviev letter now for well over 40 years, and it is frustrating not to be absolutely sure, but that's just the nature of the evidence. I think there are various candidates. I I think it's unlikely... um, not impossible, but unlikely that, that that, um, for example, that the SIS, the Secret Intelligence Service, actually commissioned a forgery. I think it is possible that individual members of the intelligence community may have known it was a fake, but nevertheless, let it go on its way. But it's impossible to prove that. There are various theories. Um, one is that, in fact, of course, it, it technically could have been genuine. Zinoviev himself said, well, no, I didn't write it, but it looks like one of mine and I would have signed it if you'd given it to me. But there are a number of reasons why it is unlikely to have been genuine. There is another school of thought that says that it was manufactured as part of Bolshevik infighting. I mean, this was a time when Stalin was very much expanding his powers in the Soviet Union and pushing out some of the old Bolshevik leaders like Zinoviev who were in his way. That's another possibility. Um, but I think the most credible one is really that it was somebody who was from what they used to call white Russians, that is anti-Bolshevik, anti-red Russians, of whom there were a large number in exile from the Soviet Union all over Europe, uh, some of whom were involved in elaborate forgery bureau uh, and were doing everything they could to discredit and, if possible, overthrow the Bolsheviks. And the principal candidate, though, again, it's impossible to actually prove, was a man called Ivan Poklovsky, who was a former officer in the Tsarist armed forces. Uh, Now, I'm sure if it was him, he didn't do it alone. Uh, and there are. it's undoubtedly, there is some form of conspiracy going on here. But it's impossible to pin down exactly who did it, against whom, and with what purpose. Oh, it, really, the important thing about the letter is less the content, is what happened to it and what was done with it. Once it actually was out in the open, so to speak, in London in 1924. There were any number of people who might have leaked it because it was circulated quite widely in the military and so on. So there were lots of people who could have passed it to the press. Um, but as to who actually wrote it, I think it probably was for with, with a view to causing trouble for Moscow. It in fact caused trouble for the Labour government as well. But it's possible that some people were involved in the conspiracy who were quite happy to cause trouble for both.
0: Do you think that the time has passed that it will ever be uncovered who wrote it?
2: Well, I I wouldn't like to say never, because I, I don't think you can ever say never. And I, I wouldn't like to think there's no way of finding it. But I, it's unlikely, I feel, because so much time has passed And, of course, um, I was involved in a major investigation of this in the late 1990s, commissioned by the then Foreign Secretary, Robin Cook, Um, as a part of which I went to Moscow to look at the archives. This was at a period where relations with Russia were were very good after the end of the the collapse of the Soviet Union, and we had a lot of cooperation from the Russian authorities. And uh, I was able to look at a lot of archives there, and it was, there was nothing there to indicate that the letter was genuine um, or to indicate, really, who might have, who might have written it. However, um, there, is, there was a book. The reason that there was an investigation in the late 90s was as the result of a publication of a book um, by Nigel West um, and uh, the former KGB Colonel, Alex Zaryov, um, called The Crown Jewels. And this was a book supposedly uh, based on information taken to Moscow by people like Kim Philby, by by British traitors, basically. And it caused a number of parliamentary questions and, and quite a lot of interest in this country, With people saying, we should not have to read about our history from what traitors have given. And so Robin Cook had ordered this investigation, And that is how we came to go to Moscow and look at all the archives. But in the book, there is a chapter on the Znoviev letter which indeed says that Pokrovsky wrote it. Now, at the time when I first saw this, I was inclined to dismiss this, partly because a lot of the surrounding detail I knew from my British research was not true, was not correct. I think now I was too quick to throw out the baby with the bathwater here. And that Pokrovsky, I can't prove it was actually him, but he's as good a choice as any, in that circle of white Russian kind of argent provocateur people causing difficulties. But it is, I'm not sure that we're ever going to know everything about it. It is impossible ever to disprove conspiracy theories. I mean One thing as an official historian working for the government, you deal with conspiracy theories all the time because part of your job is always to try and say, you know, to kind of debunk them or to try and find out what the basis of them is. And you soon learn that it's impossible Because if you say, well, we've looked through all the archives and there's nothing here. And they say, well, you would say that, wouldn't you? Because obviously it's being being held back. If you say, well, we found this and this is what it says. And they say, well, you know, you would say that, wouldn't you? So actually you can't. If people want to believe something, they're always going to. Um, All you can do is put out as much information as possible and let people draw their own conclusions from it.
0: Do you think it it sowed seeds of distrust between political parties in Britain?
2: Or do you think it's just more a symptom rather than a cause of that? Um, I think it did increase political distrust. I mean, it's partly because, and again, there are parallels, In the 1920s, there was really a realignment of the British political scene. I mean, it had been the big parties were the Conservatives and the Liberals. And, uh, you know, as always, parties expect things to go on like that. But the scene changed. And the Labour Party, which had only come into existence in 1900, is then the second biggest player after 1924, after that election. And that's a whole, you know, so there is going to be distrust um, and, and worry and shifting loyalties in that kind of situation. And I think, you know, there are obviously parallels with that, not just now, but at other times in between. So I think the whole, people talk about all this as if it's something new, as I said. But of course, it's not. And we can learn things from looking at these kind of historical episodes, because we can learn how how to look at it. And so that you've got ordinary people in in 1924, there weren't very many news outlets, there were certain newspapers that people could read and still the Daily Mail and so on and others, um, that you can't, believe everything you see everything you're told that was true in the 1920s it's even more true now when there are multiple channels for people to receive their information and you know with my official hat if you're trying to think how how can you counter disinformation and the output it one of the main ways is getting people to understand that not everything they see and hear is true they may not be able to find out exactly what is true. But if you just have that initial acceptance that there is a risk, you are being conned. That's the first step, really. I mean, governments and institutions are all working on algorithms and things to think, how can you counter this? But people have to have it in their heads as well. And that was certainly true with the Zinoviev letter. And there's a, there's a, a, a thing I quote in the book where Um, in 1999, when we published our initial report on the investigation, and we had a kind of a little do in the Foreign Office. And um, I told a Labour peer that the Zinoviev letter was not what lost Labour the election in 1924. He said, oh, yes, it was. I'm a Labour romantic, he said. We've always believed that and we always will. Now, that's, it's a nice story, but also it gives you an idea of how difficult all this is.
0: Um, what impact did it have on British-Soviet relations in the
2: long term? Less than you'd think, I suppose, in the sense that there was already a, a degree of distrust because, I mean... It, it is very difficult, and actually, again, it is parallels with today. It is very difficult to deal with another country who actually don't care um, if you know what they're up to, if you see what I mean. Now, um, and and that's the and you know another parallel because after the letter arrived, um, the Foreign Office drafted a response to it, which was sent to Moscow and. One of the reasons that I I was really convinced it was a forgery was that when we looked through the Russian documentation, it was quite clear that initially, when the protest arrived, they didn't know what we were talking about. What you know, because so it was you know indicated to me that you know they hadn't sent this letter. But then, then it kicked and said, "Well, we know we just do what we always do: with the, firstly, we deny everything, and secondly, we say the British must have done it themselves." Now, this isn't. Only a Russian thing. Uh, But it means it is a tactic of countries who want to operate in a certain way. If they absolutely say, well, we'll just say we didn't do it and we'll just say you must have done it yourself, it's actually a very hard thing to counter. um, Because, you know, but it meant that all, all the sense is going on in parallel with the necessary interaction between governments on a range of other issues, whether it's trade or whatever. Now, um, in the 1920s, Anglo-Soviet relations were bumpy. Um, They were actually broken off in 1927, but then they were re-established in 1929 because everybody realized that in the end, if it's a big country, a big power, you've you've got to have, you've got to talk to people. And actually, you don't gain anything by breaking off relations. However difficult things are, it doesn't help. Because the only hope you've got for improving things is to keep talking. And I think that's a lesson for everybody. Not, you know, It's not just an Anglo-Soviet thing or an Anglo-Russian thing. It's true with all sorts of different countries who behave in ways that you don't necessarily approve of. still to come on the History Extra podcast. Because even if you can detect that a piece of information is false, proving that it had an impact on something is an entirely different thing, which of course is exactly what happened with the Zanotti letter. When you say, well, what effect did that forgery have? You're into much different territory. So there's a lot of parallels nearly a century on.
1: Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even your speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch, because this is the Turn It Up to 11 NBA Playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. This is what you love about The NBA Playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV.
0: I think your role um, for many, many years as Chief Historian of the Foreign Office would intrigue a lot of people. Um, What was that experience like? What is it like to be
2: a historian of an official government office? Well, of course, a lot of people don't realise that the government does have historians. And in fact, the Foreign Office has um, a cadre of professional historians embedded within it, which is where I worked for many years. And really, there are two principal roles. I mean, the first is to actually publish the, in the Foreign Office's case, the history of British foreign policy. And the second is this rather vague thing called advice to ministers and senior officials, which could be absolutely anything. It might be a very small, um, literally, a point of fact or some little angle which they want a sentence or two, it might be a major research project, which takes months or even years to to work on. But really the idea, it's not, as some people um, assume that, you know, you're you're in a, a lot of trouble in regard to one particular country or not, you know, tell us everything about, it doesn't work like that. It's so that you can show people, people who have to take decisions on current affairs, where there are historical aspects that they really need to be aware of. It may be controversies, it could be anything. Um, It's not a question of, well, we did this last time, and so you should do this next time. I mean, that's not how life operates. But it is a way of showing the bear traps, of explaining particular historical sensitivities, or little details which actually can be useful in current foreign policy making and current decision making and so it's very very varied it can be absolutely anything and and therefore you know for my mind it's an extremely interesting job
0: Uh, another extremely interesting element of this is trying to uncover stuff that has been purposefully obscured or hidden Mm. how do you go about piecing together those kind of um webs
2: well there's a lot less purposefully hidden i mean the other thing about conspiracies is if you work in government you you know that there is you know it's it's always sort of 99% cock up and 1% because actually it, anybody who thinks it would be really possible for a government wide conspiracy to carry on that nobody knew about has never worked in government because it's just it's just an impossibility. Things don't work like that. Sometimes, um, obviously, people hope that certain information might not see the light of day, but in practice, it nearly always does. More likely, things are in the wrong place or in a cupboard or somewhere. Um, Quite often, it's really a question of looking in a lot of different places to try to piece together a picture uh, because things do get lost. Papers get lost in, 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 the, in the paper age. You know, and of course, it's, it's even more difficult in many ways in the digital age. Things do get lost and obscured or different copies are in different places. And if you have to do an investigation like this, that is, that is where the work lies. It's not saying who's trying to keep this hidden. It's where can we find all the bits and try to assemble them in a way that makes some kind of sense.
0: We've spoken a bit about the afterlife of the Zinoviev letter, but I wonder whether we could just return to that for a second. I'm just thinking, why why do you think that it continues to kind of rear its head and what makes it still interesting or relevant or um,
2: pertinent to look at today? Well, I think there are two aspects to that. I mean, one is certainly the political one, um, this question of interference in elections and the fact that, if any political party is out of power for a long time, um, when they come back into power, there is, they haven't got um, an ongoing relationship with, you know, with the civil service, with the intelligence agency, so on. And that's always been particularly true for Labour, where there has always been an ingrained suspicion of what they called the establishment. So it is something that if you're in a situation where people are suspicious in politics, which undoubtedly is something that happens, um, this is the kind of thing that that, um, comes up again and again. But the other side of it, I think is, uh, and when I said that um, this issue has become more topical since I started to write the book, it's because of all the interest now in whatever you want to call it, disinformation, fake news, propaganda and so on. Because in fact, there is nothing new, of course, about all that. There is a new situation in that the internet enables instantaneous, multiple sharing of information and stories can be put out. Um, I heard a program the other day where somebody said, you know, I- information is, is cheap to create and easy to disseminate. And that's undoubtedly true, particularly now. But it was also true, in the 1920s. I mean, one of the characters in my book is an amazing guy called Vladimir Orlov, who had been variously a Tsarist secret policeman. He then worked for the Bolsheviks and then he went to be a white Russian, so to speak, serving anti Bolshevik. And he ran a forgery bureau based in Berlin where he was paid a retainer by the German government, the Poles, the British, the French, and the red and the white Russians, and he manufactured, and not just him, he had a whole factory of people, they manufactured forged documents and sent them round all over the world. Now, clearly, uh, they didn't have digital means of doing this, but they were still pretty effective at it. And it's it's quite interesting to see the parallels between, between the way that false information in the 1920s uh, had the same, you know, kind of effect that we're looking at, false information, having political effects now. So I think in that sense, the Sonovia letter has acquired a kind of increased relevance because we are in a situation now where people are very uncertain of the provenance of information and what the impact of false information might be. Because even if you can detect that a piece of information is false, disinformation. Proving that it had an impact on something is an entirely different thing, which of course is exactly what happened with Zanoviev letter, even when there were some people who were pretty certain it was a fake. But then when you say, well, what effect did that forgery have? You're into much different territory. So there's a lot of parallels, nearly a century on.
0: That was Jill Bennett. Jill's book, The Zinoviev Letter, The Conspiracy That Never Dies, is available now, published by Oxford University Press. You can find plenty more on the history of secret intelligence at our website, historyextra.com. Thanks for listening. Today's podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. We'll be back on Monday when we'll be speaking to Emma Dabbery about the history of hair.